0: Well, we're jumping into Esther 3, which is, uh, you know, one of the darkest of times for the Jewish people. This is a hard passage that we're going to look at today, but I want to start off with this quote from Martin Lloyd- Lloyd-Jones, and it says, My whole life experiences are proof of the sovereignty of God and his direct interference in the lives of men. So him looking at his story, he sees God's hand. I cannot help believing what I believe. I would be a madman to believe anything else but the guiding hand of God. It is an astonishment to me. Last week, Lloyd started with this question, how did you end up where you are today? How did you get here? And when I look back on my story, Melissa and I often reflect on this, that I am standing here in this moment today by the sheer grace of God. There is no other explanation. It's not that I deserve it. It's not that I was more moral. I made perfect decisions, made better decisions than many of you in this room. It wasn't any of those things. I can look back on my story and clearly see how God protected me from certain places in my youthful ignorance, how God pulled me from places, how God put me in places, and then put people in my life. I am not standing here because of things that I have done, but because of God's grace. And many of you can look back on your stories and say the same thing. And, and it's true. As I, as I look back, what we'll see in this story, the places that I have grown the most in my life have come out of trials, tribulations, and sufferings. How many times have we heard that? You know, you grow the most when you're in your hard seasons, right? We all, we all hear that. But what is the question we usually ask when we hit a hard season or we get into a dark spot? We usually ask a three-letter word. It starts with W why? The question that I'm trying to retrain, and I'm slow learning. I'm trying to retrain my, my soul, my mind to this, is that the question I really need to be asking, because of God's faithfulness all throughout my life, I need to be asking, God, what are you trying to teach me in this moment? And how can I trust your faithfulness and who you are? Not so much the why question, because how, how much good does that really do us, you know, in, in those moments? But we will see in this passage, this is one of the darkest times for the the Jewish people. They are on uh, the brink of being annihilated and being wiped out all throughout um, the Persian Empire. But God is a specialist in this way. He takes this hopeless situation, which they would say would be the darkest of their days, and we will come to find out that they will end up celebrating this day, in fact. We're going to see how God does this over and over and over again. Takes the darkest of our stories and in, in light, when it's when it's done, when it's through, He redeems us. He does a work in us, and many times we can look back on these parts of our lives, these stories, and see that we can celebrate what God has done. I mean, I never would have wished to have gotten fired from a job. I mean, I remember the moment of walking into that office, and then the moment leaving, and the conversation, the phone call back to my wife. I never would have asked for a loss of a loved one. never would have asked for any of those things, but the truth is that God has used those to shape me for for my good and for his glory. Lloyd said it last week, God's plan of salvation shows itself in a hard path, using and redeeming hard things. And God's providence moves slowly, but it is always on time. His actions are always consistent with his character but not always how I think they should be. So this morning, uh, I'm reminded of if God would have uh, done things the way I would have thought. In kindergarten, my prayer was that I would grow up and be a cowboy, so God did not answer that prayer. Um, And in high school, I prayed that I would marry that girl that I went on the first date with and thank God for his sovereignty in my life. So we see this all throughout, but I want to pray for us this morning that we would be again to see God's sovereignty this morning as a gift of God that we can rest in, not something that we have to resist. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a hard passage to wrestle with. Would you give us wisdom? Would your spirit open our eyes to reveal what you want to teach us? But would you you do the work in our hearts of changing us, which we cannot do by our own self-effort. And so we ask for that in your name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that many of the commentaries uh, point to Esther and Mordecai's unfaithfulness. They were not the most faithful of Jews, but yet God is, is using them. I mean, we look at Esther, and we see that Esther is lying about who she is, right? She's not telling people who she is, so she's lying about that. But then she's also um, sleeping with someone who she's not married to in order to get up into this place of political power. So you think about this. Well, Mordecai's no better. He is encouraging esther to do those two things and in fact he's raising her like a daughter encouraging those two things and and we would say i mean this is true of all scripture i mean there are not many people that i could stand up here today and 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 look at scripture and be like hey uh church i want you to be more like abraham or jacob because if i said if i want to be more like abraham i'd be like hey um hey josh can you tell um people that uh kelly's actually your sister not your wife so anytime that it comes up it might benefit you that's abraham or you, you think about Jacob, he deceives his father when his father's, uh, you know, divvying out the will. I wouldn't encourage any of you to do that too. Pretend you're your brother, put on some hair if your brother's hairier than you, and do what Jacob did. And you, see, so you see this, this dilemma that many of us look at the scriptures at this, as a story, almost as if we would a movie, and we just kind of like gloss over it. Oh, I've read Esther. But what we do when we do that is we actually take the realness and the rawness of life out of the story. Let's not do that today. Let's keep the realness and rawness of the story because, for our own benefit, we need to actually see that these people were walking through real times in real moments in real parts of history. You are doing the same. We are bumping up against the brokenness of this world every day in our jobs, in our relationships, in our health and to remove this and just say, oh, well, be more like Esther, and be courageous, and be like, we are taking away the imperfectness of their faith, but also the imperfectness of this world, and so in so doing, we remove how God works. Sally Lloyd-Jones says this in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which we read to our children, and she just nails it, and it says this, the Bible isn't mainly about you, Let's just pause there. That might be a shock to many of you, because many of us, when we read our scripture, we usually open it up and say, okay, God, what do you have for me? And we make it about us, but the scriptures are not about you and what you should be doing. Ultimately, it's about God and what he has done. God is the hero of the story. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy and emulate. But the Bible does have some heroes in it. But most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. There are lots of stories comprised in the Bible. But the main story the Bible is telling is the big story, the story of how God loves us, his children, and how he has come to rescue us. See, God uses all situations, all people, imperfect faith, imperfect situations for His plan and His purposes. He works through them, He works through us, and that is so true. We can see clearly the depravity of this world and of men in this story. So let's unpack the chapter. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Esther 3, and we'll begin with verse 1. And we'll just highlight through some of them. I'm not going to go over through everything, the, the whole chapter, but we're going to highlight through some of these verses and piece together the story of what is happening. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. So after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadithea and the Agagite. And advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him, so this is the first time that we 're being introduced to a main character of the story so let 's pay attention to this if we 're reading this like a story let 's pay attention to this as this a major character. so who is haman well we don 't have a ton of information on Haman, but what we know from this that the king elevates him to this place of rulership, where when you think about the whole Persian empire, this is a big deal. He's going to be over all the princes of all these provinces, and he's to—he's giving this to him, so this is, a, this is a major deal. It does say that he is uh, an Agagite. Now, who who is that? More than likely, what it's talking about here, is of history. Let's trace this line. Many scholars believe they make this leap that, that Haman was actually related to uh, the king Agag, uh, who is uh, the king of the Amalekites? we see this in G- genesis thirty six that 's where they 're introduced there 's this nomadic people group all the way back to the time of Moses. You see this coming uh, play that they were uh, even further back than that. They were the grandson of esau so this this people was the grandson of Esau, so think Jacob Esau, but the king that is being described here in Exodus 17, is this king was an evil man. Why was this king talked about as being this evil man who had no fear of God in Exodus 17? What this king did is he chose to fight the Israelites as they were going out of Egypt. And so he uh, attacked from the back. Now, as the people are traveling, who would be in the rear of all the people? You'd have your ill, you'd have your children, and you would have your women. So this man, this king, is recorded in Exodus 17, comes from behind and attacks the women, the ill, and the children. So Moses, after the battle, he says, I want you to recite this and put this in the law that we will wipe out this king and this people because he shows no fear of God and he is evil and these people are evil. Moses actually says, recite this and make sure that you do this when you have an opportunity. So when is the opportunity? When Saul becomes king, so Samuel, uh, you know, anoints Saul as king. Saul becomes king. This is in 1 Samuel 15, 8. The command of God is to go out and destroy the Amalekites. But Saul, what does Saul do? Saul doesn't destroy all of the people and he doesn't take the king's life he actually spares the king's life and some of the people and some of the possessions so this is fascinating and if this is actually Haman's lineage if this is if this is actually who who he is in his lineage then Israel's disobedience all the way back to this point are playing in the present reality and future of Haman in this moment it's fascinating this is a hard command that God gives in, in, in 1 Samuel. We're not going to talk about it uh, too much this morning, but it is something that we need to wrestle through. Now, many people say how a high-ranking Persian official would become in the line of a West Semite uh, in this position. You know, it, it, We don't know for sure that it is, but it mentions it twice. It mentions it in verse 15, verse 3, verse 15, too, that he was an agagite. It's going to come to play in just a minute. Verse 2. All of the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him but Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage so the king's gate is when you know when I first read that I was thinking okay Mordecai is just chilling by a gate uh, sipping some lemonade you know having a good old time that's not what's happening here it's Susa is the city the capital city of Persia this is actually the king's gate is actually think of it as the Uh, administrative complex, the Persepolis, which you can actually see um, in this picture. It is a large building or buildings that are leading into the king's court, 65 yards by 32 yards, and there actually would have been two lions positioned at the front of the gate. So Mordecai more than likely works for the king's administration and is in working in one one of these buildings. So let's look back, chapter two. What what does Mordecai do for the king in chapter 2? He tells of what? This plot and, of these people, and he saves the king's life. Now, then Haman in chapter 3 is introduced, and what is happening to Haman? Haman's being what? Promoted. And Mordecai, what happened when he saved the king's life? What happened? Nothing. We don't know he wasn't rewarded. Like the king just kind of like, oh, hey, thanks for saving my life and just kind of moved on. So it could be out of pride that he thinks he should be the one promoted and, and Haman's actually the one promoted. Or it could be because he knows who Haman's people are and he is out of national nationalistic pride, or it could be that it was his religious uh, zeal. I don't think it's religious zeal. This isn't a Daniel situation. Like Mordecai isn't standing up in the sense that um, Haman's calling him to worship, like Daniel was. And Mordecai, honestly, he's in Persia. He's in Susa. He's not a faithful Jew and going back to Jerusalem with Ezra. So I don't think it's because of religious pride alone, but the, the fact of the matter is, is him not bowing down and paying homage to Haman, which would probably just would have been a sign of respect, is actually uh, points to that this whole story, God is going to use this to, to flare up for his, his purposes. Verse four, I I'm mean, verse five and six. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, now notice the king's servants in verse four repeatedly spoke to Mordecai about this. Haman was filled with rage And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for he had told them, uh, he had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Mordecai, what has he been telling Esther the entire story to not tell people who she is, right? That she's a Jew. But what does Mordecai do? He comes out and says, I'm a Jew. And so the cat's out of the bag. Like, this is the the whole deal. Now, this is really interesting where it goes into the lineage of, of could be Haman. You think about if you paint back all the way, the past is playing into the present in this moment. He wants to destroy not just one person for not paying respect to him, but an entire people. An entire people is what Haman wants to do because of his pride and his hatred. But God's plans cannot be thwarted. We have to wrestle with this reality when we read the scriptures that God uses not only just imperfect people, not just us, not just believers, but he uses unbelievers and people who do not choose him for his plans and purposes. We have to just wrestle with this and embrace this because all throughout the Old Testament, you see God raising up rulers to do his work who are not followers of him. You have him allowing evil things to happen and it's all, it, he does it and he works for his good and for his plans. We, we have to see that his judgment, even on Israel, is an act of discipline to call them back to himself. It's ultimately an act of love because he knows that the false gods that they are worshiping are not uh, what they're called to do and they are not, they're not gonna bring fulfillment like they promise. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nicene, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. So what is the pur? It's this casting of lots. It's these dice that they would roll. And they begin filling in the calendar. So imagine this. Haman is so consumed by this that every day he goes in to cast these lots to figure out, to fill in the calendar, which is going to be the day which we're going to issue this decree. So even God is sovereignty is seen in this. We have human responsibility, human actions, and God's sovereignty, even to the day that is picked. There's gonna be a twelve month gap between what is what it was started here and then when the decree will go so the people have time to prepare for. But the hearers of this story would see that God is is over even timing even of this. Now this is the, the Jewish feast Purim. They, they, this is where they derives their name from this, the Pur, the, the casting of lots. This is where this Jewish feast that they celebrate uh, comes from. But in verses 8 and 9, we see Haman pleading his case with the king that they sh- we should annihilate all these people because they don't profit you. Do you see how he's talking about them? He's demeaning them. He's talking about them as prophet. He's not talking about them as people anymore. And he's playing to the king's pride, and he's playing to the king's fear of of why he should do this. But he's lying to the king. I mean, the truth is, only one person is disobeying the king's order, not the entire people. So he's lying to the king. And then he even says... I will spend my own money, 10,000 talents of silver, which weighed about 750,000 pounds. This is multi-millions of dollars. How did Haman, a guy like this, I mean, yeah, he had access to wealth and those things, but he's probably crooked. Um, A lot of commentators say you don't inherit this type of wealth without pulling some shady deals and doing some... Some stuff that's sketchy and wicked on the side of of taking advantage of people. And so you see this even in this. But what is Haman asking for? We need to be very clear. What he is asking for of the king is genocide. He is asking for genocide. He is asking to wipe out an entire people. Now think about Haman, the evil act that he is asking for. He is doing the evil one's work in this. Think about this. If the entire Jewish Population and race is wiped out. there would be no future messiah. Do you see how this is in line with the evil one and what he would want to do if he, he, he Haman is really ultimately a vessel of the evil one, trying to decree this, so the decree has to be sent out into these curs translating. Uh, this into all of the provinces of the kingdom. I want to bring back up the map of the entire Persian uh, Empire. The P- Persian Empire is huge; it's vast. It it goes for all o- over the place, all over. This is essentially the world at this point in human history, and you see all of these different provinces and all these different places in the Persian Empire. And you think about that—all of these places speak these different languages, these different cultures, and these things that the request is to go out to all of these places. So in this these, in these matter of eight verses, throughout the whole kingdom shows up several times. I'm going to read through those verses. In verse 6, throughout the whole kingdom, verse 8, that they're scattered, the Jews are scattered and in abroad in and dispersed among all the provinces of your kingdom. Verse 12, over all the provinces to the officials of all peoples, to every province in its own script and every people its own language. Verse 13, letters sent by couriers to all king's provinces with instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Verse 14, a copy of each document was be t- issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready. This is a big deal. This is not a small undertaking. This is, there's a lot of work in this. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of resources in this. And you think about it stemming from Haman and his hatred and one man didn't bow down and pay respect. Now some scholars point out that the time and the date that Haman is talking about issuing the decree and then from when the decree will actually go in to effect would be several months later, the 12, 12 month, it would actually be the Passover celebration of the Jewish people of when this was supposed to happen. Now, if that's true, if they're, if they're accurate in their timing in that, think about this. The day that Haman has scheduled and cast lots for this annihilation to happen would be the very day that these Jewish people are supposed to be celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and their sin, bondage to sin. This is a dark day for the Jewish people. I mean, they had to have been thinking when they received this decree, this was the end. I mean, where is God? He's turned to We've turned our backs on him, but he's definitely turned his back on us. We don't don't see any hope. We don't see a way out of this. I mean, does he not see us? Think about the moments that have been darkest in your story. What are the questions that you begin asking? Let's talk about Haman and his hatred. Let's talk about what he is going on in his life, in his process, So what is the process of someone getting to a place where they would go from one person not paying respect to I want to annihilate a whole people group? How does someone get there? When I was in um, Washington, D.C., it was a couple months ago, and it was finishing up with my classes, and um, the previous time I was in Washington, D.C., they were building the Holocaust Museum, but hadn't completed it. And so this time I wanted to make sure that uh, I had a ticket, I could get in, I could, I could go through that. And now I knew, I've done a lot of uh, research in World War II, and I knew it was going to be uh, a taxing day emotionally going through it. But what I didn't expect was to walk through this timeline of how these everyday, ordinary German Uh, citizens would get from a place of seeing the Jew not as human and not only just contoning genocide, but also celebrating it. And one of the things uh, that I noticed, I came upon this um, big section, it was filled with Nazi propaganda in the beginning phases of how they started teaching and brainwashing people to think of of Jewish people and anti-Semitism. I think uh, the propaganda guy that that Hitler had was Joseph uh, Grobel, is that right? Yeah, and so he he had this similar. He had this simple message. It was based on emotionalism. It was simple, and it was based on people's pride, national pride. He said we need to restore Germany uh, to be Germany to be great again, like it was in, in World War One, before World War One, before the world came and destroyed us. And then the other thing that he did is he started just dehumanizing um, the Jews and saying they do not profit us. This is exactly what Haman did with the king. They don't profit us. We need to get rid of them. We need to make your kingdom great. But it's all rooted in pride and fear. Why did Haman do this? Pride and fear. Why did uh, the king um, with Queen Vashti, when he gets rid of her, why does he get rid of her? It's from his pride and fear that this is going to happen all throughout the kingdom. So when I was studying this, it took me down a path of just honestly sitting in this really uh, difficult passage, but began reflecting, and I think it's important for us to begin reflecting on how are we like Haman? How do we have a tendency to go down this slippery slope of dehumanizing people and seeing them as a product for our own profit or seeing their value based on what they look like, their health, their illness, their skin color, whatever whatever it is? How do we end up doing that? And the reality is, is when I started uh, opening myself up to the Spirit convicting me in this, what I really realized is how much of my day I spend critiquing and judging others for the very same things based on what they wear, where, they, where they're from, what, what they say, wh- whatever it is. But how similar I found myself of this slippery slope of looking at people not as created in the image of God, but starting to look at that. And I started to think about our culture and think about reality TV. And you have reality TV and you have this, this idea that for many of these shows, you have people, being, their lives are literally being destroyed and falling apart and we are watching it for entertainment. And I think about pornography and how rampant it is in in our culture. And and again, we are seeing people devalued and used for profit and sold in its modern-day sex slavery. And you think about these people's lives are being destroyed for someone's pleasure. I hope, church, that this sinks in deep with a conviction that we, like Haman, like the king, can be motivated out of pride and fear and we can harden our hearts to the idea that the people standing in front of us that we meet day to day, even if we disagree with them, even if they don't see eye to eye, even if they look different than us, even if they would do things different than us, even if they disagree, they are created in the image of God. That is a hard reality, but I pray that you will uh, go there this week uh, with us. Verse 15, the couriers go out and they impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel of Susa. This is the, the complex where, where Haman, uh, where they worked. And while the king and Haman, this, so the, the decree goes out and the king and Haman are doing what? They're sitting down having a drink at a banquet. So this is another contrast of what's happening in in, in the story is you have this contrast of these people in the city and in the whole province are dismayed and thinking, man, like this is going to happen. And what did the king and Haman do? They sit down and have a drink. It just shows the contrast. One thing I want to do this morning that I think will be really helpful is when I first got this passage, I was like, oh boy, Haman, genocide. Great. Um, Thanks, Rob. Um, But one of the things I was was thinking about is, you know, for for years, I have really struggled with the Old Testament and reading the Old Testament. I know many of you have been talking with you, have really just really struggled with it. And I, I I would have thought, you know, like of the top five words I'd use to describe the Old Testament, love, compassion, grace would not have been in there. Um, you know, I would have talked about law, judgment, wrath, you know, I would have talked about all those things. And it just seemed very, you know, contrasting Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, how is it one similar story? But then then professors, when I went to seminary, started teaching me and, and other people in books I read. There's a book by Graham Goldsworthy called According to Plan that's really helpful in understanding all of the Scripture. But one of the things is I started to understand, I started to understand that the prophets were teaching actually a, a gospel of grace. I just didn't look through it that lens. And so when I started to understand this, I, I realized that even uh, in the Roadomaeus after Jesus' ascension, he's talking with his two disciples, and what is he doing? He's using the scriptures. The scriptures of the Old Testament, and he's walking through passage upon passage, pointing them that hey, this is talking about me, and I'm fulfilling this. I am the one that this person was talking about. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one that they were looking forward to. And I can't imagine that Jesus didn't come to Esther three and say, and guess what? I am the one that you were looking for in this passage. So how do we get here? There, there are three, uh, three questions I want to give you in just a minute. But when we look back at the Old Testament, we are looking back almost like we're looking on a map of an over uh, aerial view of it. And we're looking back and seeing how God worked in all these different ways for his people. But in the moment, they're not seeing that. They're on the ground level and walking through the valleys and seeing the details and those type of things. So we need to, when we come against circumstances in our life that point and we see just this we see so narrowly of this we need to point back to the overarching scriptures of God that point this big story and so how are we going to get there I want to I want to guide us through that here the here are the three questions from this book show them Jesus there's more questions but I I use uh, I use about five or six when I'm looking at an Old Testament passage here here are the three that I want to give you this morning what does this passage reveal about who God is What problem and tension is left unsettled in this passage? And how is this tension or problem solved in Jesus? So this is honestly a good thing just to write down somewhere. And when you're reading Old Testament scripture, just to have with you so that you can start uh, looking at uh, this through the the lens of this. Graham Goldsworthy, in his book According uh, to Plan, says it this way. Grace then becomes an attitude of God for the good of those who do not deserve good. Whenever God acts for the good of the people, he is acting against what they deserve as rebellious sinners. And that action is called grace. That's going to change our our view, our filter of this. So let's walk through those three questions. What does this passage reveal about who God is? God, in his grace, revealed himself clearly to his people. Through his acts and through his written word in the law, he clearly defined, here are the boundaries of which you are to walk with me, to worship me, to do. If you do this, I am going to protect you. You're going to flourish in the land. I'm going to give you the land. You're going to dwell with me. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm going to to have protection over you. We We are going to be in communion but they don't obey they go outside of god's provision i mean they are in exile they are in the persian empire they they have been taken over by the babylonians why because they have chose to worship false gods. They have made a choice. They have disobeyed. They have gone outside of God's providence. So what do we learn about God in this passage? He is faithful to his word. He cannot be unfaithful to his word. And so what was his word to them? You go outside this boundary. And what is going to happen? Judgment. I'm going to discipline you to bring you back into boundary with me. And so what do we have here? Where are the Jewish people? They're not where they should be, right? Right. So we, we see them in, in bondage. We also see that God in his faithfulness is going to act not on what they deserve, but he's going to act in graciousness and save them. How many times throughout the scripture read judges and it's this cycle over and over again of these people rise up, they say, oh, you're great God. And then oh, two days later, they're going to worship somebody else, right? And then God takes them through a discipline, brings them back to himself, raises them up. They're like, oh God, you're so great again. And then they do it again. But God is disciplining his people, and though it is hard and it stings at the time, it is an act of love for his people. So what is the problem and tension that remains and is left unsettled in this passage? The people are in exile. They're about to be destroyed. Haman looks to be victorious. The other tension at the end of the story is while they are going to be delivered from Haman, they are still going to be in exile, and they're still going to have this tension of they have sinful hearts, they're still going to be prone to wander from the God who has saved them time and time again. They are still going to come up with it. But God, the story is going to bring the good news. God is at work in ways uh, for them which they could not do for themselves. Think about this. They are in a place where only God is at the place that could, God could save them. How many are you, of you are in that place this morning? You think you're in a place where it's only, it's only God that can save you. That is actually a good place to be because it reminds us of who can actually do this work of saving and healing. So in the book of Esther, we see God's redemptive purposes in their context of them being exiled in a country that was not their own. It gives us a picture of humanity being enslaved and bondage due to sin. We see the brokenness of society and sin in every place we turn in relationships in your workplace. We see, we see the wickedness and, and the brokenness of even our world, even of, of the earth. We see it calling out that we need to be calling out for a savior, but God is, on, is working on the behalf of his people. So how does he do it? How is this tension resolved in this passage through Jesus? This is the fun part. We get to see ourselves in the story. We were exiled like Israel We were enslaved to bondage of sin. We had no hope or a way out in our own strength. We could not do it. Many of us tend to think of ourselves as pretty good, and Jesus comes in with the assist. but that's not how Scripture paints it. Scripture shows us that we could not save ourselves. We needed a faithful one to stand in the gap for us. So Jesus, in this way, was our faithful Mordecai who stood up, and was faithful even in places of temptation. Jesus was our Esther who used his royal position not for his own gain, but for our gain and for the sake of others. He gave up his position, being with God the Father, for our benefit. And he didn't just do that. He didn't just plead to the king, to his father, to save us. What he did was he took on our judgment, what we deserved, and gave us the opposite of what we deserved. So in Jesus, we actually become God's people through the faithful one, not through our faithfulness that we could boast, but through God, this God who works on our behalf for us. He is the perfect faithful one. Praise God. He came and faced the temptations. He stood faithful. Jesus took on the judgment that was not his own to carry, it was ours. We are the unfaithful Jewish people in this story. We were in exile. We made those choices. What did we deserve? Romans 5.8. But at the time, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to be perfect. He used imperfect ways, hard ways, to bring about deliverance for us. And he does the same here. We need to see ourselves in this story. We need to see our brokenness, that we cannot save ourselves. We need to get there. They were in a position where it looked hopeless if God did not rescue them. Tim Keller has this great quote. I'm going, ask, I'm going to ask the band to come up at this moment. Tim Keller has this quote. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And the greatest act of love in history, He stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. So how does, I always ask this question when reading reading a scripture, I always ask, how does believing the good news of Jesus change how I live? In light of this passage, I don't want to give you just this academic knowledge and just, hey, go and be filled with, you know more about Esther and Haman. How does believing the good news of Jesus actually affect our day-to-day lives in Christ? I believe that we can trust God's sovereignty. He is at work for our good. The more we trust in his sovereignty, the more we can rest from trying to find deliverance in our own strength. Y'all, I'm tired of doing that. I'm tired of looking at this temporary world and trying to fill myself with comfort or people approval or power or control or security. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fulfill. It's a lie that it will fulfill. God doesn't give me what I deserve. He gives the opposite. He works for my good even when I cannot see it. God's plans cannot be thwarted. There is a veiled providence, but yet a visible faith in the tangible every day of my life. So, when we face our dark moments, when the moments that feel hopeless, we know that we are not alone. We have hope because Jesus has faced those moments. He was insulted, he was planned against, he was tried to kill, he was abandoned by his closest of friends, he had relatives that had passed away. Was there anything that Jesus faced that was not even more so harder than what we do? But our hope is not in ourselves. It's that Jesus was the faithful one who walked through those darkness, walked through those trials, walked through those sufferings on our behalf and came out faithful. Jesus is our victorious one. I want to say this so clearly because I believe it's so true after looking at this. I'm so deeply. uh, it's, It's working its way down from my head to my heart, and I know it's slow. It's the slowest 18 inches, but this is becoming true for me. God is taking the hopeless situations, and he redeems them and makes them the moments we celebrate. Think about this. The darkest hour on earth, Jesus' death, from Friday until Sunday the world was hopeless wondering what was going to happen but on Sunday God took the darkest of days in humanity and again made it a day that we would look back and celebrate That's the God that we bring our life to his faithfulness his goodness on our behalf in church it is he knows that you are imperfect he knows that you are not going to walk through the darkest moments just choosing the best route and, and choosing to trust God. He knows that we wrestle in doubt and can't see clearly because we're so narrowly focused on the lab that just came back, on, the, on the, the spouse, the thing that's happening in our world. But God wants to bring our eyes, not because we can do it on our own, but because he is with us and he is the one who has walked through this on our behalf. For many of you, if, you if, if I pray for you, I often pray the scripture from 2 Corinthians 5. It says, may the God of all comfort comfort you in your times of trouble so that you can be a comfort to others when they walk through their times of trial. Y'all, our hope is not to walk through our trials and sufferings in our own strength, but in the one who has paid and walked through them on our behalf and has done it perfectly. I'm going to give a couple minutes just for you guys to reflect in these moments through these scriptures of Romans 5, 6, 8 through 10. And I want us to then sing in response to God has always been faithful, always will, and our hope is in him. It is not in ourselves. It is not in our circumstances. It is not in our government. It is not in our wealth. It is not in our careers. It is in nothing but him and him alone. And I want to invite any of you who have gotten to this place this morning and maybe you're feeling at this moment, you're feeling, I don't know that I can trust this God. I haven't, I haven't gone over this line of, of trusting myself. And I just want to implore you this morning to take a step of faith over this line and put your trust in Jesus and his plans for your life, not your own. May this morning be a morning that you step over the life the line from death to life. Let's reflect on this together and then sing.